What was his name? He was called Yeshua. The man's dead. His followers are in hiding. He's been a threat. Take control out there and finish things. The tomb is sealed. Guarded with your life. If this body vanishes, we have a potential messiah. Where has he gone? You tell me. You will track down the corpse of Yeshua. He's right here. Open your heart and see. Yeah. <laughs> they ought to make a movie. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I'll tell you why in just a moment as we get ready. But he is risen. Glad that you're here celebrating that today. If um, you're unfamiliar with scripture, you're welcome to pull a Bible out of your pew right in front of you, one of these paperbacks. If you don't own one, you can take it with you. It should have a little sticker, and if it doesn't, doesn't matter. I'm telling you, you can take it with you. It's there for you. And um, our text today is on page 527 in this version. If you want to follow along and make sure I'm not making anything up. I was kind of surprised this week going into, uh, by the way, all of you who are visiting, you're welcome to come back next week because you make us sound good. Yeah, good singers. Woohoo! Very fun. Greetings to all of you. And uh, it's good. To, oh, I'm seeing some favorite people out here. Woo! How fun. I'll calm down now and hopefully my voice will last. So it's that season of Easter bunny egg hunts. Uh, the news has religious commentary. I've noticed uh, this last week as I was observing um, an interview with a pastor down in New York City. I was listening and leaning in as hard as I could to see if there was going to be a clear statement about what Easter was about. But it was more about like hope, you know, kind of like springtime. The flowers come back up. We all can have hope even if we've gone through dark times. By the way, I believe that. But I think there's something a little more significant than that. In our newspaper, a, uh, a, a column writer uh, mentioned talking about reaching, trying to reach millennials. I'll just read a, little, a few things from Timothy Malcolm's comment. Religious leaders and thinkers have spent some years uh, over the last year, some time over the last year, wondering how to bring people in their 20s and early 30s back into the faith. And he was making a comment on the film, uh, the broadcast last week, The Passion, which was all modern music and all of that. I didn't see it, so if you liked it, I'm not making any comment about it, good or bad. He said, that ain't going to work, though. That was his view. He said, just slicking it up isn't going to work. Holy Week is Christianity's biggest opportunity to connect. He's actually wrong on that. Statistically, um, Christmas time. Yeah, uh, uh, Christmas Eve services are the bigger time. He, didn't, he, he just isn't up on those facts, but that's okay. I forgive him. While those practicing uh, observe Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday by attending Mass, praying, and spending time with family members, non-believers will do what they always do, everything else. If they want to seek millennials, I think it'll be more because they think more like millennials, means showing that Christianity, get this, doesn't have to be a glossy production set to Katy Perry's unconditionally, but that it can be anywhere and everywhere to all people and for all people. Well, I would agree with that. 
And then he said something that disappointed me. It's not about proselytizing, but about being kind and friendly, giving something to someone who needs it more than you, showing compassion to someone who's without comfort. I agree with that statement that we should comfort and share and be generous and shine like lights in a lost world. But there is something about wanting people to come to my position, not because it's my position, but because it's the truth. Did you notice why I put the Risen trailer up? I'm not advertising for movies. I'm going to show you some pictures today of a book and someone else's testimony. It's kind of an unusual morning for me uh, because I think it'll be profitable for us. But I'm advertising for Jesus because he's alive. He's not dead. The most important event in human history. And as a matter of fact, Jesus had in mind people would follow him. He's risen. This is our text. And at the very end of the text, there's a portion of scripture that looks like this. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, not just after the resurrection, before the resurrection, out throughout his life, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The writer, John, has a very clear reason that he's writing. He wants people to be confronted with the facts because the facts will force me to make a decision. If that statement, thank you, Hollywood, by the way, I almost never say this, but thank you, Hollywood, that they put this ad out that said the most important event in human history. Is it really so? Well, it is. And there are reasons for it. Christianity is, in fact, logical, intellectually understandable. There are evidences for why people believe we're not all just like mindless little babies dropped on our head at birth, you know, and so we're not all there and we have blind faith and just believe whatever we're told. There are reasons for believing in the gospel, transformational reasons and definite evidences. So I thought it might be fun for us today. By the way, can I just make a comment? The word proselytizing is kind of an ugly word today because people think of it in the negative, right? They think of it as... Um, you know, grabbing somebody by the tie or the church collar and kind of trying to shovel something down their throat that they don't want. Or we think of proselytizing in some places of the world today that's done at sword point or bomb edge. Jesus had nothing of that in mind, ever. Sometimes even in the history church, just to be be completely honest and transparent, even the church resorted to some foolishness like that. Terrible seasons in our history. No, the evidence will stand for itself and the Holy Spirit will do the rest of the work. We simply are to be his witnesses and proclaim what we know to be true as best as we can and as lovingly as we can. So I thought today it would be interesting, speaking of that, uh, to look at somebody who was kind of a diehard in the process. You know, there are people like that even among Jesus' disciples. Don't you find that encouraging? And uh, if you're a note taker in your bulletin, there's a place to write, and I've got it very easy today. All the fill-ins are D's. I mean, how easy can it be? And the person I'm talking about today is Thomas. So what do you think the first D is? Hmm. How did you know that? Actually, he's called Thomas Didymus, which simply means the twin. There must have been a lookalike. 
and they identified him as such. Did you know that? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Uh, I love questions, by the way. We're allowed to ask questions here. So Thomas Didymus is the person. That's not your first D, though. That's just identifying him. He becomes eventually a proselytizer. And by the way, you know what the word proselyte means or proselyte, proselytizing? comes from two words, pros, toward, near, to go near. And the second word means to go. So to go near. So I was over here and something persuaded me to change my mind and go over here. And that's exactly what is involved in what the Bible calls conversion. I changed my mind. I was thinking that way. I realize I'm wrong. I turn it around. I go that way. That's a clear description of repentance, by the way. And for those of you who may not be aware, when Jesus first comes on the scene, you know what the very first sermon is that Jesus preached? Anybody know? I will. But I was wondering if somebody knew. Jesus comes on the scene, and his first words are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your mind. Turn around. Follow me. <laughs> That's what's involved. So let's look at Thomas, the doubter, because none of us ever struggle with doubts, do we? I think all of us do. But I also think we get a little insight. It might be fun to look at a disciple that's mostly ignored. I think he's an interesting person. I think there are three D's that might describe him. And I am taking a little bit of liberty with this, but I think there's some evidence in the text. First one is the issue of doubting. He's, you know, you ever interact with pessimists? Don't lie to me. Anyway, what, what do pessimists always call themselves? Realists, thank you. I have it in my notes. You win. I'll give you a quarter later. Okay. Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, by the way, people wondered why. Why wasn't he with the rest of the crowd? We don't know for sure, but I suspect everything had been dashed to the ground. We're leaving out this morning what happened from Friday through Sunday. What happened Friday? Why they call it Good Friday, I don't know. It wasn't very good. Jesus is crucified and he dies on the cross unquestionably. The soldiers, Pilate, are all astounded when they stab him in the side. There's, no, there's an outflow of blood, the evidence of death. They were amazed that he was dead so quickly because that was unusual. Crucifixion was designed to torment the person for days, if possible. And so he's dead, and all the dreams that the disciples had, we were going to build this kingdom on earth, just got smashed. Now, if you put all your money in a certain IRA and that thing goes belly up, how do you feel today? And if you are in the stock market at all, you probably do feel that way today. My point is, Thomas Didymus wasn't with him. Probably he was off moping somewhere. We don't know, though. But anyway, it goes on. The other disciples are trying to persuade him. We're telling you, if you were to read the portion just in front of this on your Bible, if you have it open, you'll see that Jesus had just revealed himself again to his disciples. He was with them in the room. And they said, hey, he was just with us. You've got to believe us. And his reaction, uh, he's a realist. He's a realist. Eh, unless I see the hands, unless I touch it, unless I put my hand into his side, I'm simply not buying it. 
My dreams have been dashed. I'm kind of torqued. And uh, I think he's still dead. Knock it off. That's kind of how he feels. So in spite of it, though, the scripture tells us that Jesus said when he shows up this time, come on, Thomas, come on over here. Put your hands into my side. Touch the prints on my hands. See for yourself. And be believing, not unbelieving. As far as we know, he didn't even have to touch them. We don't know. He probably did. I think all of the disciples had to have their hands on. Wow, Jesus, you're back. I'm sure they did. The the body of Jesus, the resurrection body, just as an aside, if you're not aware of this, um, is the prototype for all humanity. Did you know that all the quick and the dead are going to be raised? All. And stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what the scripture tells us. He's the prototype. We're going to have bodies like unto his. Remarkable. Because that body is designed not only for life in this world, but for life in the other world, which this body can't handle. That's why it's amazing. That's why he suddenly appears in the room. And yet he can still be touched. And he can take, hey, you got something to eat? Got a snack? Give me some fish. What? And he eats it. Don't ask me to explain all how that works. I'm just telling you that's what it says. And so he has that kind of body. And... Thomas sees it, he becomes convinced, and of course, he fulfilled his duty as a disciple, as an apostle, and preached the gospel. Some think as far as uh, the land of India, but we're not totally sure. But he also has another quality about him. Um, I think sometimes um, he may have been a little bit on the pessimistic side, even though he said he's a realist. Here's an interesting text. Um, And let me introduce it before we look at the actual verse. There was a time just before the death of Jesus where Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. And he has a friend named Lazarus. Anybody ever heard of him? And his two sisters, Mary and Martha. They're famous, right? We We even use Mary and Martha as references. Martha's the worrier, makes sure food's on the table. You know, Mary's the one sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Lazarus was a beloved friend. There was a special bond that Jesus had in his humanity with these people. Lazarus became very sick. Somebody came and told Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick to the point of death. Jesus was with his disciples and said, okay, thanks for the news, and kept on his mission. Now, we know this man healed all kinds of people. So the disciples are wondering, and others are wondering, what's he doing? Lazarus dies. So Lazarus has now been dead for three days. Jesus comes through town. His sisters run out. They're weeping. They're saying, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And he said, "Um, I'm kind of glad that I wasn't here so that you might now believe who I am. And he stands outside the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Here's the first evidence that Jesus is telling the truth when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will not suffer from the consequence of death, but will live forever. Lazarus comes out of the tomb after three days. It's a miracle. We're going to see in a few minutes that the people who were against Jesus not only wanted to take Jesus out, but I mentioned this last week, they wanted to take Lazarus out too. They wanted him murdered. Why? Think of what this guy's telling his neighbors. I was dead, dude. I was there. I mean, I saw it all. I saw, you know, who knows who he saw. Uh, Don't know if he saw Moses, Noah, 
Russell Crowe. I don't know who he saw there. <laughs> but he's back, and he's telling people about it. And the reason I'm alive is this Messiah, Jesus, called me out of the grave. You can ask all my neighbors about it. Everybody was a buzz. It was all over Twitter in Jerusalem. And so the powers that be say, we've got to take this guy out. But here's the story. On the way there, all the disciples know that these people are against Jesus and don't want him around. This is before he raises Lazarus from the dead. And here's what happens. Jesus, therefore, said to them plainly, uh, you don't get this, but Lazarus is, in fact, dead. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But come on, let's go to him. Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, I don't know if you get, he's not talking about Lazarus. He's not saying, oh, I want to go and die with Lazarus. No, he's saying Jesus is so nutty, he's going to Jerusalem where they're trying to kill him. So let's go. Okay, guys, if that's the way our master wants to take us, let's go and we'll all get killed together. Debbie Downer. Debbie Downer. Oh, man. That's your second D. A little bit of a downer, I think. Oh, let's go. We'll all die together. Nothing of the kind happened. But there's a really cool side about Thomas, I believe. Thomas was one of those people that didn't care if he asked a question that made him look dumb. You know, have you ever heard good teachers say there are no dumb questions? Yeah. Then you ask when he goes, that one is, though. But no, I, you know, that's just mean. There really aren't. The worst question, the worst dumb question is not asking so that you don't know. And I love Thomas because he is straight up about it. He's one of these guys that needs to have some hard facts. Explain this to me. I'm not getting it. So this is the night that Jesus is being betrayed. He's about to lay his life down on the cross. This is before we have all the good news, before we know that he's raised from the dead, which, by the way, think about this as I show you this text. If he's raised from the dead, everything that he says in this text is the truth. Otherwise, he would have come back and said, oh, guys, I got a few things wrong here. Let me correct this, this, and this. There's nothing to correct. Jesus is with his disciples they're having the Last Supper together. They're talking, and he says this. He knows his disciples are concerned. They're feeling something heavy in the air. Jesus is telling them he's going to lay down his life. They're not quite processing it all right. They don't understand. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also and you know the way I am going. By the way, I use this text almost always when I lay somebody to rest. Because Jesus makes it very clear that the real me and the real you lives on past the grave. And that there are places in the spiritual realm. What exactly they're like, we don't totally know. Except that being with God is being with life itself. And all of his glory and his creative abilities and all of that pleasure is in the right hand of the Father. So there's a place with the Father that I'm preparing for you. And you can, the last point, you can know rather than hope so or guess what's going to happen when you walk through death's door. Because everyone in this room is going to. 
Are you sure about what you're going to experience? Because Jesus helps us to know for sure. But notice, great question, Thomas. This is a very tense moment with all the disciples. Thomas, I don't care what you guys think. I think I'm a dummy. I don't, Lord, I don't understand what you're saying. Where, where, where are you going? We're here in Jerusalem. We're here for the Passover. And you keep saying something about, you know, being beaten and all of this and, and put to death by the leaders. Where are you going? I'm not getting this. Yes. <laughs> Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's a standalone memory verse right there. Worth having tucked away. Didn't care whether it was a dumb question. He was a realist. He would press in for truth. He wanted to know what is it all about. Thomas presses enough because he does get it. He wants the facts. He wants to know what it's about. Leon Morris, who wrote a commentary, the New International Commentary on the New Testament, made this interesting statement about the Gospel of John here in this section. John longs to see men and women believe. He's not tried to write an impartial history. The reason he's sharing this is he wants to secure people in the faith. He wants people to be converted. He is bearing his witness of those great events in which God has acted for man's salvation. And that's what this was all about. Jesus about to lay down his life for the salvation of men and women. When Jesus shows himself raised from the dead to Thomas, what does Thomas say? Anybody remember? When Thomas sees it, he's really alive. I didn't believe my brothers, but I believe him now because I see it. My Lord and my God. That is a profound statement, especially in the days of the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord. There are many lords. In fact, if anything, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the early Christians were persecuted as atheists. Did you know that? Because in Rome, there are many gods, and the best politics is to please them all, to honor them all. And Christians would say, there's only one God, and Jesus is Lord. And so that was some of their accusation during the times of persecution. My Lord and my God. John recorded the confession of Thomas, which hails Jesus as Lord and God. There cannot be any doubt that John and Thomas and the disciples conceived of Jesus as the very incarnate God, the Savior God-man. And that is, in fact, who he is. Now, maybe um, you have found that um, apologetics encourages you as a Christian. Does anybody know what apologetics is? It's not apologizing. Like, I'm sorry I'm a Christian. Would you forgive me? That's, that's not what it is. <clears throat> apologetics is it's a Greek word for defense. An apology is a defense. And so apologetics is that part of Christianity where people defend the faith. Okay? And I find that reading those things is encouraging to me. But sometimes the Holy Spirit uses argument and apologies, defenses, to wear down the unbelieving, stubborn hearts of those who aren't sure they want to believe in this person, Jesus. So this morning in your second half of your notes, I got three more Ds. 
See that? And I will let you out before 2 o'clock, I promise. <laughs> Actually, I'm almost done. Debbie Downer? Oh, and... Um, oh, I didn't give you a word, did I? He's determined. He's determined to get the truth, which I appreciate. I think it's a good thing. There are reasons to believe, and I want to kind of rattle off a few quickly just by way of encouragement. And maybe someone is here today who is saying, yeah, you know, I'm open to that, but isn't it all just fairy tales? Well, no, it really isn't. And so there are three Ds here. One is deduction. The second one is dominance. And the third one is deception. And I'll explain what I mean by all of those, right? First one is deduction. Some of the great writers in apologetics. Anybody remember Josh McDowell? Okay, so he was a big apologist, right? He wrote two volumes, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. This is back in the 70s, and more Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But there were many apologists in the history of the church, by the way, many. And now the Presbyterian back, background, uh, there was a gentleman named John Warwick Montgomery, who's years before uh, Josh McDowell came on the scene. I want to read something from him in just a minute. One scholar named... J.N.D. Anderson, speaking about Christianity, says this. The empty tomb, this is deduction. Just think about this for a minute. The empty tomb stands a veritable rock as an essential element in the evidence for the resurrection. To suggest that it was not, in fact, empty, as some have done, because people have tried to lie about all of this to say no, no, it seems ridiculous. It's a matter of history that the apostles from the very beginning made many converts where? In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Hostile as it was by proclaiming the glad news that Christ has risen from the grave and they did it within a short walk from the sepulcher. Any one of their hearers could have visited the tomb and come back again between lunch and what is now called tea time. It is... Conceivable Is it even conceivable? It's inconceivable <laughs> that the apostles would have had the success they had with thousands of people coming to faith within weeks of the resurrection. Inconceivable. Yeah, it does mean what I think it means. John Warwick Montgomery, History and Christianity of Downers Grove, 1964, writes... Note that when the disciples of Jesus proclaimed the resurrection, they did, it, they did so as eyewitnesses, and they did so while people were still alive who had contact with the events they spoke about. In 56 AD, that's really early, Paul wrote that over 500 people had seen the risen Jesus, and most of them were still alive. It passes the bounds of credibility that the early Christians could have manufactured such a tale and then preached it among those who might have easily refuted it simply by producing the body of Jesus. In fact, because those who have been against Christianity, and people have mixed reasons and motives for that, because it's so hard to prove that there was actually still a body in the grave, it's so clear that they couldn't find the body of Jesus. They make movies about it here today. I mean, that is the point of the movie, you know, he's alive. Um, they had to go a different way to try to attack it, and I'll, I'll explain that in just a minute. Second thing is the dominance of the gospel, the impact of Christianity on history, the very fact that we still use B.C. and A.D. 
points to something cataclysmic that happened in the history of man. That's why I love the trailer, the most important event in human history. More important was creation, but we weren't there. It wasn't human history. But since we're here and fallen and broken, this is a critical, critical occurrence. The transfer of the Sabbath. Christianity comes out of Jewish roots. You know that. The Sabbath is Saturday. We should be worshiping on Saturday, but we don't. Why? Because on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the grave, and the disciples started to honor that. And so to this day, Sunday, the first day of the week, still, 2,000 years later, is looked at, mostly ignored today, but still, a transformation took place. And one last thing on the dominance, the influence of the gospel on culture. There's a Jewish historian <clears throat> writing during the first century. His name was Josephus. You may be acquainted with it. And he gives a little report trying to be accurate about Jewish history. He gives this report. Now, there was about this time a man, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him many Jews and also many of the Greeks. This man was the Christ. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross upon his impeachment, <clears throat> those who had loved from the first did not forsake him. Well, he got that wrong. He's only a historian because some of them did forsake him at the initial. If he appeared to them alive the third day, the divine prophets having spoken these and thousands of wonderful things about him. And even now, Listen to the way he puts this. The race of Christians so named from him has not died out. Now, I discovered something I didn't know about Josephus. This was enlightening. A scholar named Michael Green wrote a book, Man Alive. I think it's about the resurrection. Mentioned this. This story that Joseph, Josephus is writing is remarkable when we remember that so far from being sympathetic to Christians, Josephus was a Jew writing to please the Romans. And this story would not have pleased them in the slightest. He would hardly have included it if he didn't think it was true. The reason being... Uh, I found this little tidbit as I was researching. It's very fascinating that sometime after the resurrection of Jesus, there was a op-ed, if you will, coming out of Rome that said, messing with graves is a no-no and dirty, filthy business. You shouldn't be doing that. Why did they say that? Because they got a report from Pilate who had to fill out his paperwork. You know, policemen have to do their paperwork. Send it in, it comes to Rome and says, who stole a body out of a Jewish grave? Who, what are these nutcases doing? And out came this little vindictive. Isn't it interesting? All these little goodies that we don't like to look at. But the last thing is deception. One of the things people tried to do is say, well, Jesus never really got killed. He swooned. He was put up on the cross. They tried to limit how much damage they did to him, put him in the grave, and then they rescued him later, and he recovered. Yeah, I'm sure he'd be traipsing around for 40 days, you know, visiting and talking to people after going through an apparent crucifixion. All of those things have been debunked since then. There really is an Area 51. You knew even then. You follow me? Let me show you what I mean. Matthew 28. Now, while they're on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city. That's the disciples are on their way to look for Jesus. 
and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, you know, in those days, if you fell asleep on your watch and something happened, that was the penalty. So this was not something you would mess around with lightly. So when these powers say, we're going to give you money, I wouldn't take the money. I'd have left town. But there's more to it. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money, did as they were instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, and it is to this day. This made the newspapers. Everybody knew it was a scam. It was a cover-up. Why do people have to cover up? They don't want to know the truth. They don't want the truth to come out that Jesus was, in fact, alive. So why is it that we don't want the truth? The most important event in human history, the missing body of Jesus is virtually irrefutable. Why does that matter? Because it demands a response. Do you know anybody else that's come back from the dead and talked to you lately? It demands a response. This is a huge issue. And it's not all just intellectual. I think... The will is involved. I wonder a little bit whether Thomas had a little bit of a will issue involved as well. Jesus is dead. You know what? All that stuff about going around the whole world and preaching the gospel in his name and doing miracles and all of that. Now I'm off the hook. He's dead. It's all over. Okay, I'm going to go back to fishing or whatever my job was. I'm going to reopen the company. Forget that stuff. Too much sacrifice, too much demand, too much. But he sees Jesus. He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus responds to that. Do you believe because you see? Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. I mean, let's face it. There is a dimension. I, I have questions for God. Any of you have questions for God? I got some questions. Why didn't you show up a few more times since then? Just, just a few. It's real quiet in here right now. <laughs> Actually, I think he has a few. But it's not common by any means. That's a question I have. But blessed are those who believe, even though they haven't seen it, but you do end up seeing it because the Spirit of God makes this truth come alive and transform you. And it really did. There is logical reason. There are, there are reasons. There is a case for Easter. There's a case for the resurrection. In fact, there's a book written about it. The case for Easter. But you know what? There's more to it than just having the facts. There is a choice of the will. I don't do this very often, but I am going to indulge us in one more video clip because I think it kind of describes a Thomas-type person being moved into the kingdom. And maybe some of you will relate to this brother as you hear his story. Lee Strobel, the author of the book, was a legal forensic journalist. It's his job to be a realist, to be a pessimist to say, nah, prove that, prove that, prove that. So let me just have you tell, have him tell you his story, and I'll be quiet for a minute.
But for most of my life, I was an atheist. I thought the idea of an all-loving, all-powerful creator of the universe, I thought it was stupid. I mean, my background's in journalism and law. I tended to be a skeptical person. I was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. So I needed evidence before I believe anything. One day my wife came up to me. She had been agnostic, and she said after a period of spiritual investigation, she decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, you know, this is the worst possible news I could get. I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude who's going to spend all of her time serving the poor in Skid Row somewhere. I thought this was the end of our marriage. But in the ensuing months, I saw positive changes in her values, in her character, in the way she related to me and the children. It was winsome, and it was attractive, and it made me want to check things out. So I went to church one day, uh, mainly to try to see if I could get her out of this cult that she's gotten involved in. But I heard the message of Jesus articulated for the first time in a way that I could understand it. That forgiveness is a free gift and that Jesus Christ died for our sins that we might spend eternity with him. And I walked out saying, I was still an atheist, but also saying, if this is true, this has huge implications for my life. And so I used my journalism training and legal training to begin an investigation into whether there's any credibility to Christianity or to any other world faith system for that matter. I did that for a year and nine months until November the 8th of 1981. And on that day, I realized that in light of the torrent of evidence flowing in the direction of the truth of Christianity, it would require more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Because to be an atheist, I would have to swim upstream against this torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. And so on that day, I received Jesus Christ as my forgiver and as my leader. And just like with my wife, my life began to change over time. My values, my character, the purpose of my life began to be transformed over time in a way that, as I look back, I can't imagine staying on the path I was on compared to the adventure and the fulfillment and the joy of following Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said. So is it just facts or is it an issue of the will? One of the things I love in his story is that his wife changed. And it wasn't ugly. It was winsome. And you know what? The same thing happened to him. And uh, make no mistake, if I follow him, as he said, as not only my forgiver, but as my leader... He's God. He has a right to make changes in my life. And they'll be good if you're willing to risk it. So let me just ask you today, I'm not advertising for Hollywood or books or video clips. I'm really advertising for Jesus Christ because he's alive and he wants to know you in a personal way. He wants you to know him personally. He wants to give you life eternal and life that is called abundant. It's transformational. It does, in fact, make a difference in this here and now world. If you're wondering about where you're parked in relation to this person, Jesus, I'm going to make this very simple for you. If you want to explore it, in the pew, there are little cards like this. In your bulletin, there's a little place you can write something and tear it off. You can hand it into any of our servants from the platform or the ushers, or there's a little box on the way out in the foyer. You can drop it in there. So let me just say this. I only have questions. I just wonder. Give me your name and number. I'll pursue that.
try to interact with you. We're not trying to embarrass anybody or put you on the spot because some of us are afraid to ask a question that might be dumb in public, you know. But uh, there are no dumb questions about this. Love to answer it. Love to help you along in your journey into finding and settling the issue of knowing Christ and knowing what he was talking about when he spoke to his disciples about life eternal, a place prepared for us and that he's prepared for you as well. So feel free to write that down, drop it off, or I'll wait up front at the end. Be glad to talk with anyone, pray with you if you need that. I'd love to interact with you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to prayer. Thank you for being here on this uh, glorious Easter Sunday. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I'm going to sound like Ben now. I think we could do better than that. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That sounds like it. Thank you. Let's pray. For those who struggle with the question, God, show your mercy and your goodness. Pursue them, Holy Spirit. You are the source of life from creation. You're the source of eternal life through redemption. You've proved it and put your seal of approval on it through resurrection, that which we celebrate particularly today, but we do remember it every single Sunday. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you that real faith that turns us around is possible. Not just religion, not just acting out, but genuine relationship and transformation. I'm praying, Holy Spirit, pursue both those who are not yet in your family and even those in your family who trifle with you. Because your, your demands are absolute. But you are such a good leader and such a good savior. We praise you and thank you today. We worship you. We ask God for your angelic protection on these people that you would keep them to fulfill your will. And we ask these things in the great name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen, amen and amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Have a great Easter afternoon.